Welcome to Mainstreaming Asian Americans. Hi, I'm Father Fred Vergara, Missionary for Asian American Ministries in the Episcopal Church. In this podcast, we move beyond the campaign to stop Asian hate towards full Asian life and living in America. No one wants to be marginalized. The hope is to be included as an integral part of mainstream American church and society. We do this by highlighting the struggles and triumphs of Americans of Asian descent. We also look at the joys of living in America while sharing the essence of cultures of Asian heritage. This podcast promises to be engaging, dynamic, and filled with life-changing perspectives. Join us as we journey together towards mainstreaming Asian Americans. In 1997, K.R. Narayanan was elected the 10th president of India with an outstanding 95% of the common vote. It was a landslide victory for a public official who had been called out of retirement, but even more so because he was a Dalit. Of India's population of 1.4 billion people, the Dalit comprise 16.6% of or over 200 million people. These numbers do not express itself in representation as Dalits are still the victims of the historical India's caste system. They are the untouchables, the outcasts of the India's caste system. Although it was abolished in 1955, the impact of caste system is still heavily felt in India and even more so amongst the Dalit. Yet in all this oppressive condition in history, as well as in contemporary times, it has not hindered Dalit people to struggle and to make significant contribution on Indian life and society. Currently, they are making their impacts in academics, cinema and television, literature, judiciary and religion. Our guest today, the Dyson Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Rochester, and soon to become Bishop of the Episcopal Church in Michigan, is a strong Dalit ally. He comes from the Shidra caste, the fourth and lowest in the ladder of the caste system, but his heart is for the outcast, the Dalits. Since 1998, he was and still is an active member of the Campaign on Dalit Human Rights. His work of advocacy for the poor and the oppressed in India included serving at the leper's colony in Madras and as priest of the Church of South India. He brings this gift and advocacy in the United States. Coming to the United States in 1973, he served in various capacities while working on his advanced pastoral studies in Union Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia and Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey, where he graduated Master in Theology then he obtained a PhD in Religion and Society at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. He is also conferred Doctor of Divinity Honoris Causa by the General Theological Seminary in New York City. He has helped a lot in the renewal of the Episcopal Church and as a leading figure in the struggle 
for human rights as well as the struggle for in the issue of racism in the United States. And most of all, he is also involved in the evangelism, reconciliation, and church growth in the Episcopal Church. He served as rector of St. Albans Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Newark until he was elected Bishop of Rochester, the first Asian American to be elected in that position. Brothers and sisters, he is the Right Reverend Prince Greenville Singh. Bishop Prince, welcome to our podcast, Mainstreaming Asian Americans. Thank you for being in our program today. Now, uh, tell us more about yourself, Mr. Prince. Thank you so much, Father Fred, for having me uh, join you. It is certainly an honor to be with you in conversation at any time, but especially around these times and engaging some of the questions that we have in terms of how Asian Americans can be engaged in leadership uh, in order to help us become a better world. Um, let me say a little bit more about myself. I am actually spending the last week as the diocesan in the Diocese of Rochester. I've served here for nearly 14 years. Um, in fact, uh, the 2nd of February will be the 14th anniversary of my election in this part of God's vineyard. I've had the uh, honor and the hum um, and the humble privilege of serving here for all these years. Um, and I'm preparing myself to go to join the saints of Eastern and Western Michigan in the dioceses there, because they want to figure out a way to optimize ministry uh, and have invited me to travel with them for the next few years to figure out how to best utilize the resources that we have without necessarily having two bishops in that sense of the word in these two dioceses even though it's a it's a large um, number of congregations um, a little more about myself maybe uh, um, i i was born in south india and uh, came here after having finished uh, my master's in public administration and having gone to seminary and served in the diocese of Madras in the Church of South India for about four years. So in 1993 is when I came here and uh, joined the Episcopal Church and my journey with the Episcopal Church has continued, strengthened and I've had the privilege of uh, participating as a baptized member of the church as well as as a clergy and now as a bishop. Bishop, you uh, grew up in India and you were introduced to the Christian faith by your parents. And incidentally, you were raised by a single mother. Uh, and in your Facebook page recently, you mentioned fondly about your mom. That did she really influence you in terms of your perspective and your journey into the Christian ministry? How yes. did. Yes, mom. Um... My mother's name is Ida, um, and Ida uh, grew up in the south of India, but came to Madras after she was married. And so she, she had two of us, um, myself and my brother. My dad left us when I was 11 years old, 
and um, and and my mom who had been a homemaker until that time became very engaged with the YWCA Young Women's Christian Association and took on a pioneering responsibility as an adult education coordinator it was very new at the time she was taking this on but she introduced what is now popularly referred to as functional literacy and worked among women especially in the slums of madras um now of course it's referred to as chennai and i saw first hand uh, from close quarters somebody who had a passion for justice and wanted to do something to change or help change lives especially of these women that she was working with and that's how she lived out her faith my mother never really sat me down and told me about jesus she practiced the gospel in a very real way and i could make the connections as to why she lived the way she did i will never forget one of my earliest memories when i was a child i was probably about 13 years old and and uh, adobe had come to our house adobe's somebody who brought the laundry and he happened to be from a lower caste um, i assume he was a dalit and when he came home and brought the laundry uh, he chose to sit on the floor and my mother insisted that he sit in a chair and as a young boy i noticed that and he refused almost immediately but she insisted and she had her way so uh, and then he sat down he ser- she served him tea etc and so early on in my life i got to witness through my mom what it means to treat one another with respect with human dignity and even though the caste system is very real in india i saw glimpses of how as followers of jesus we could make a difference and it led me to uh, be a lot more curious about and engaged in uh, dalit human rights later later on <clears throat> as an adult so i have fond memories <clears throat> of my mother and just 2 years ago she passed and when we this was just a few months before everything shut down for covid and i have had the privilege of being at my mother's funeral and there were over 1000 people who had shown up uh, this was in chennai and uh, i remember many of them were women from the slums um who had been impacted by her life in a very sort of tangible way so she didn't just preach the gospel to say you know god makes you feel wanted and welcomed but gave people tools in order to be um proactive in coming out of poverty and building their lives in that sense of the word to make a better future for themselves and for their children thank you bishop for sharing that uh, moment with your uh, mother and uh, uh behalf of the Episcopal Asian American Ministries we extend our sympathy but she must have influenced you a lot because your compassion for the dalit is as uh, is so remarkable that you brought their plight even when you wrote uh, your PhD dissertation your PhD dissertation is entitled human dignity and social visibility 
a Christian ethic to engage India's caste system. Um, what uh, you know, I believe many of my listeners today may not know much about the word Dalit. I mentioned it a little bit, but um, can you share more examples about uh, discrimination against Dalits in history? And is it similar or uh, similar to African apartheid or the American racism? How do you compare that with the other kind of marginalization of peoples? Well, thank you. Thank you for the question. It's a pretty complicated sense of understanding Dalits. Uh, I would say that it belongs, the Dalit reality belongs to uh, a family of discriminations. So whether it's apartheid in South Africa or racism in the United States or other forms of discrimination, they're all part of the same family. There are nuances, but there are many commonalities or similarities. I like Isabel Wilkerson's identification of the eight pillars of caste, which have commonalities between, um, in fact, she uses the racism from uh, uh, the American experience, the Holocaust, uh, Holocaust as well as the, uh, the caste system in India. And she names the eight pillars, which are divine will and the laws of nature, heritability, endogamy, and the control of marriage and mating, purity versus pollution, occupational hierarchy, dehumanization and stigma, terror of enforcement, cruelty as means of control, and finally, inherent superiority versus inherent inferiority. So those are the eight pillars that she identifies. And I think across the board, you can see this in the family of discriminations. Um, so in the, in you know, my, my entry into the Dalit uh, human rights conversation and protest and eventually some policy making, if you will, is, um, you know, very much grounded in the times when I was a priest in India and all the, all the churches in India, um, in, in the southern uh, part of India, are mostly located in Dalit colonies. So there are Dalit colonies that are a part of a, a village. So there's a main village and then there's a Dalit colony. Within the spatial differentiation, churches were planted and built mostly in Dalit colonies, which is itself a huge testimony to the liberation ideology as well as the liberation theology uh, that is a part of the gospel. And so I found that my initial years as a priest, I was learning a lot about the, the struggle of Dalits when some of my young people in the congregation would get beaten up because they drank from the well in an upper caste village um, or that they you know looked at a girl from an upper caste community and so that was enough for them to get beaten up and so early on in my life as a priest i got to understand that without clarity around theology there was, there was not going to be a way for us to overcome the bad aspects of religion, if you will, 
whether it's in hinduism or in christianity or in any other parts of uh, of religious expressions there are within our religious expressions built in prejudices and biases that then become solidified and sometimes theologically uh, justified uh, like for instance the doctrine of discovery as we understand it in the in the americas where a doctrine was used to abuse scripture in an abusive way uh, in an ungodly way uh, to bring about domination with um, with regard to native americans and then that eventually also became what we now know as white supremacy and other aspects of um of world of a, of a, of an ungodly religiosity if you will so i think i think it's important for us to understand that religion can play a very bad or a very big role in endorsing discriminations as much as religion can do the work of liberation and in overcoming and uh, moving us towards a more egalitarian uh, and a beloved community like expression of what god wants us to be for christianity is indeed a, a living religion and uh, you we the region where you come from has a rich history of christianity for that is where uh, uh, the apostle thomas came and preached the gospel and uh, until he was murdered in madras in 52 ad mm-hmm. uh, and it is said that uh, the first people who came to christianity were the dalits because of course they they had nothing to lose and also because christianity came as a good news um so um, how does christianity as developed in particularly in south india became the good news for the dalit people yeah i think this the the thomas tradition is um, is pretty complicated i would say that uh, um some of the ways in which um christianity in the early century and you know since then got in that sense of the word acquiesced if you will within the larger caste culture uh, for a long period of time and it wasn't until um in recent years in modern years um uh, in the 19th uh, century in the latter part of the 18th century is when even the thomas christians the martoma christians started to recognize that christianity was not um to be associated with with the within the caste system and it wasn't until um later on with dalit theology emerging that uh, we moved into a more critical analysis of indian christian theology within the indian subcontinent for instance so i would say that the the dalit movement the dalit theology um emerging from from the ground with dalit theologians men and women articulating uh, a perspective on on christianity uh, not from the western lens and neither from the indian christian lens which was a more romanical lens the dalit theological lenses were more from the ground and hence were able to recognize the christ or the jesus 
um, within scriptures as the one who stood with the outcast was shunned like the outcasts were and are was treated as an other whenever he protested or questioned uh, issues of or brought about issues of injustice to the table etc so i think it's important to understand that dalit theology is part of like what you said uh, the the christian tradition which is alive and is constantly learning and evolving and becoming more like uh, the kingdom of god and the and the and the beloved community that christ um, spoke about or or um, uh, gave us some clues about in becoming and making uh, room for us to become less discriminatory and more embracing of the fact that all of us uh, are made in the beloved image of god it's fascinating that the dalit theology is not a copy of the western theological thinking but really a emanating from the context in which uh, mm-hmm. uh, people find themselves particularly the dalit uh, now bishop will shift to uh, you as a you know your personal life as a as a minister when you were young you were a young preacher uh, you were a president of the student christian movement but there was a story about one day while you were preaching you lost your prepared sermon and had to improvise uh, uh, tell us about that experience well actually that experience was when i was in sunday school and i was a member of uh, st andrews in uh, the city of madras it's one of the larger churches and it's an english speaking church and i remember we were doing a pageant uh, uh, a christmas pageant and my role was uh, to preach a sermon as part of the pageant and i remember my uh, sunday school teacher had you know put on this robe uh that that was my my pastor's robe uh and he was of course a you know an adult and i was a child i was probably about 15, 14 something like that and uh i got into this huge robe and they put the cincture band to just hold it so i could walk and i still remember i had to hold my hands up in oran's position because it was too long for me the sleeves were falling off uh over my hands and i remember going up the pulpit and putting my hand in what i thought was the pocket uh to realize it was actually a hole that led to the pocket in the trousers and so in my horror i realized i i didn't have a script for the sermon that i was supposed to preach so so i ad lib i had to make up a sermon on the spot and it was pretty embarrassing to stand in front of you know probably 1000 plus people who had come for the pageant and uh, i remember coming down from the pulpit sweating bullets and my sunday school teacher god bless her mrs nathaniel took a hold of my shoulders and said prince you were brilliant i think she lied but for that moment i felt so good that i didn't totally bomb even though in my heart i knew i had bombed <laughs> so that was my first sermon in, in that sense of the word that 
I had preached, and of course, since then I've had many moments when I was sweatful of preaching sermons. You were you were playing preacher, and you became a preacher. <laughs> yeah, playing preacher exactly. Now uh, you also conducted a baptism in India, where there was an insistence on public baptism at the possibility of losing privileges, but gaining God's acceptance. So that kind of test your, you know, your your character. Now tell us how significant was that in your understanding of of, of the Christian ministry, making choices. Uh, and... Well, you know, Fred. The thing that that I always come back to is the faithfulness of followers of Jesus on the ground. You know, as you know, in places like India, many Dalits become Christians because they find in Jesus a liberating um, and a and a companion in God who is able to help them overcome. all kinds of spiritual traumas if you will right and so i remember in my first year as a priest i was stationed in a in a village called kottapallimatta which is about 20 miles south of uh, chittur which is one of the cities or towns in andhra pradesh so it was a border town if you will uh, between tamil nadu and and uh, andhra pradesh and they were bilingual in that sense of speaking tamil and telugu both my tam- my tamil was bad and my telugu was worse but i somehow managed to be present and and preach the gospel in that sense of the word and there were several people who wanted to be baptized you know and they were all families so in the course of the conversations in preparation for baptism i would talk to the village, talk, talk to the families and say you know because there is a law in india that very clearly articulates that if you become a christian you could lose your subsidies as a dalit because as far as the government was concerned uh you were no more a dalit you became a christian and this was something that was put into the formulation of the constitution of india when india became independent in 1947 and the constitution was written in 1950 now when i went and spoke like this to families they would all come back to me with the same response where they would say you know we want this to be a public witness so that people in our neighborhood can recognize that god has not shunned us you know the irony in a very interesting way fred is that a dalit could work as a laborer in helping construct a temple right mm-hmm. but he or she could not enter the temple that's the irony right so for the first time dalits were finding themselves especially within the christian faith a portal of welcome to say you are welcome god loves you and that part of the mis- the message got through in some very profound ways and so the loyalty with which some of them came was to say we don't mind if we face uh, retribution from our families 
a rebuttal from our families. We want them to know that we are following this Jesus who, who welcomes us and is a part of our lives. So I remember we had a baptism of 100 people. I had to go and get all the clergy from the, from the district to come and help me in that sense of the word. And, you know, it was a glorious baptism. We couldn't have it in the church because the church was too small. So we had, we had a big tent put out and, and it was almost by the bus station and people saw people being baptized and that sort of thing. I know a couple of them had their houses burned after that, but they were very clear that they wanted everybody to know that they were following this Jesus who was willing to be outcast for them. It's really a, a giant step of faith to lose certain privileges. So it's really, there's already at the beginning of their becoming baptized Christians, they already have put their place in terms of self-sacrifice for that matter. Wow. Uh, so you, you have, it's fascinating. You have done a lot of things while in India. Eventually you came to the United States and uh, settled here. At the first uh, time that you came here, did you find any experience or experience any culture shock? Uh, being new in the United States and how how can I the culture shock impact you uh, in terms of how you view your perspective now in the United States? Yeah, I found the culture shock um, initially in in seminary, where um, in my first expression expressions at least um, there was a, a reticence reticence to. Um, any thought that was from outside the Western frame of reference. This was only in the initial year. Um, and that was, a, that was a shock because I thought that um, the, the theological enterprise was a lot more open ecumenically in that sense of the word uh, and um, across nations. Um, and so it was a it was a bit of a rude awakening to recognize that engaging um, theologies such as Dalit theology and expressions of Christian um, nurture from other contexts um, that were faced with uh, a little bit of a um, I mean partly you know exotic exotic if you will but partly not really engageable in that sense of the word. So I, that was my initial um, understanding of uh, some of the conflict in terms of culture. But of course, you know, as I, as I lived and moved and so on in, um, in the United States, I realized more and more clearly that, uh, that the color lines are very um, sophisticated in places and um, and not so sophisticated in other places. So you constantly had to figure out ways in which you needed to negotiate, understand, uh, learn, unlearn, uh, position myself, if you will, uh, as a person of color and recognize that, uh, you know, I couldn't assume anything in that sense of the word. So it was a pretty complicated um, set of culture shocks, if you will. 
um, in my initial years. Uh, but over the years, I've realized also that, you know, a lot has changed, but nothing has changed as well in some ways. So depending on where you are, you constantly have to almost renegotiate and figure out, you know, how you are perceived and how you perceive others. Bishop Prince, now we go to uh, the church that we so love, the church that we belong, the Episcopal Church. Now, as we know, uh, the Episcopal Church history is closely tied to the history and development of the United States, which to us in Asia came as an imperialist nation. Uh, this history in my country where even our um, the first uh, Episcopal missionary came both as a uh, together with the occupying forces in the Philippines. Um, now, you have served in the Episcopal Church as priest for many years in New Jersey. And uh, now, how has this experience uh, being a priest in the Episcopal Church uh, differ or compare with your being priest uh, way back in India, uh, in the South India, and you also ministered in the Marathoma Church. So how would you describe uh, being, you know, a priest here in the Episcopal Church coming from a third world, oh, well, from Asia, uh, and now becoming part of uh, a church that has been uh, associated in its history uh, to the uh, kind of uh, imperial power that uh, colonized many parts of Asia in some way? Mm. Well, I would say that the main thing that stood out for me as a new priest in the Episcopal Church, which was, you know, from 94, I want to say, when I moved into New York, in that New York area, and started my uh, master's or postmasters in Princeton, is when I reached out to the Diocese of uh, Newark, where Bishop Spong was the bishop and, and uh, I remember speaking to the deployment officer and it was the summer months and I had just moved into uh, a cousin's house in the city and I called the diocesan office, spoke to the deployment officer and said I was a priest from the Church of South India, which is a part of the Anglican Communion. Was there anything that I could do to help? And there was a long pause and then she said, uh, are you free this Sunday? <laughs> and later on, you know, Bishop Spong licensed me and I started to serve in, in the Episcopal Church as a quote-unquote substitute or supply priest for uh, a good chunk of time when I was doing my, um, you know, my early, early years as a PhD student and so on. So one of the, the, the main thing that stood out for me is uh, uh, the real desire and practice to be inclusive as a body. And that's probably um, a little more of a progressive movement than what I experienced in the Church of South India. In the Church of South India, um, for instance, during the time that I was serving, 
there were Dalit bishops, for instance, in place. Um, and yet there was struggle with women. You know, women's ordination, uh, the role of women, the safety with which women could work in the church, etc. Uh, those were still major issues in that sense of the word. And I think, you know, um, almost 30 years after my ordination, or more than 30 years after my ordination, I can say that those are those are not um, forgotten struggles. They're still struggles in in some other parts, like like in India. Where whereas in in the in the states and in the Episcopal Church, I found that there was a real willingness to move in the direction of wanting to be inclusive, struggling to be inclusive, uh, but somehow moving forward with um, with some clarity, whether it was inclusion of people of color, people um, uh, of different say, sexual orientation, women, um, and, you know, uh, of late um, people who are transgender, etc. So I, I, I think um, the Episcopal Church is not perfect, but it is certainly on its way in that sense of the word to move beyond rhetoric and just talk um, to practice. Um, you know, in a, in a, in a sim simple way, I can say, you know, I was elected as a bishop. I was not nominated, I was elected. Uh, by a community of faithful people in Rochester. They had uh, four other candidates to elect um, and they elected me, uh, first Bishop of Color to be elected in the Diocese of Rochester. And I, I don't want to suggest that that is indicative of anything other than a real genuine desire to practice becoming beloved community. Uh, now, we have all kinds of issues um, that are still real, but I can clearly say that that the Episcopal Church is, is moving in the right direction in terms of bringing in leadership um, that is more diverse than it has been in the past and increasingly so. I mean, the number of women who have been elected to the Episcopate in the last three, four years is testimony, if you will, uh, to the fact that the Episcopal Church is actually uh, about practicing what it has been preaching for a long time about the inclusive love of Jesus. Thank you, Bishop. Yes, it, indeed, we, have, we seem to have come a long way from where we were many, many years ago. And in, in the fact, I could say that we seem to be the avant-garde in diversity and change and inclusion. Uh, of course, without not without sacrifice, not without struggle, as we also need to understand that some of the uh, factions or schisms that came uh, was due to this theological uh, uh, debate. Now, let's talk about your diocese in Rochester where you have been, you have served for 14 years, right? Uh, until you now are moving to another diocese. Uh, how would you describe your ministry there at uh, Road Sister and, uh, and what made you decide that it's now time to move to another diocese? 
tell us more about your experience sure, there. Sure. The diaspora. Being the first uh, Asian American, right? Or, are you the first person of color too, right? To be right. the bishop there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Diocese of Rochester is made up of uh, amazingly curious leaders um, who are not afraid to take risks and uh, uh, follow Jesus. You know, um, we identified um, in my time here that our vision is uh, joy in Christ, a way of life. And our mission, in that sense of the word, was to grow and develop congregations numerically, spiritually, and in missional leadership. Over the past um, probably six or seven years, we have also used three lenses to help give direction and, and focus to our mission, if you will. So the three lenses are three ships, if you will, uh, relationship, leadership, and stewardship. So in that sense of the word, we have discerned that we do not want to be a diocese that defines itself as only in that sense of the word, quote unquote, managing decline, uh, because we don't see ourselves as a declining diocese. In fact, if you look at the numbers, the Diocese of Rochester has um, indicated very clearly that it has slowed down the decline in, in quite a strong way, in a clear way. And it has also shown that our membership is increasing. Um, so I want to say that the Episcopal Church is not about taking on a narrative of decline uh, in at least the iteration of the, of the Diocese of Rochester. We have found that, that there is room for innovation. There is a willingness to take risk. There is a willingness to make adjustments in our stewardship uh, so that our resources are put in places and invested in places of developing uh, leaders who can uh, face the challenges, if you will, uh, of, of the culture that is changing in our larger contexts, etc. So I, I have a lot of enthusiasm about the fact that, that uh, we are a growing church, um, not only spiritually, not only in terms of missional um, growth, but also in terms of numbers. Uh, we have, you know, in, in my episcopate, we have really focused on numbers um, because numbers are a lagging indication as to how we are connecting uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ with people in, in the ordinary real world. Thank you, Bishop. Your innovation, risk, stewardship, uh, some of the, the three hallmarks of your growth as a diocese and also in terms of people. Now, uh, talking about innovation and risk, uh, you, the diocese recently received Afghan refugees and prior to that, uh, they received refugees from Myanmar, Karen communities who were, you know, uh, came to the United States uh, 
you know, being uh, fleeing persecution uh, and the diocese, the church, and the churches, the parishes that you have welcomed them uh, with open arms. Um, how did uh, the whole church, the whole diocese, and probably the community of Rochester uh, respond to this welcoming of strangers from foreign shores or foreign lands? And uh, did, did you experience some resistance from the community? And how did you deal with it? Well, the the Episcopal Church is only as good as its congregation. I mean, the congregation is really the portal, the red door that welcomes or shuts out. So I think the the good news is that more and more of our congregations are clear about welcoming the stranger, whoever the stranger is. And so there are congregations, especially in the city of Rochester, that have had some history of welcoming, especially new Americans, whether they are from South Sudan, uh, from Myanmar, um, or most recently, uh, one of our congregations welcomed Afghani refugees who had just landed in Rochester. It gets to be pretty cold in the winter. And, you know, to land in a cold place from Afghanistan with a family uh, can be quite daunting. And so one of our churches, the Church of the Ascension, where we have quite a sizable uh, population of, um, uh, of Episcopalians who are from Myanmar, welcomed uh, and in fact, with with protection for COVID, uh, we're able to host a luncheon uh, for Afghani refugees. And I remember meeting some of these uh, new Americans who have come to to Rochester. And you know, it is pretty um, pretty scary to come to a new place. One, uh, I remember e even meeting a person who was uh, a woman who was pregnant with twins. And uh, in fact, I just got note last, I mean, just this week that, uh, that she gave birth to twins. Uh, so I mean, just imagine they coming to a new land, a foreign land, uh, to a community of people that are strangers. And all of a sudden, there is a, a welcoming luncheon uh, with people who are wanting to listen, wanting to say welcome, etc. I think that's a pretty simple human um, hospitality that uh, that we that we all can extend to those who are uh, different and especially to those who arrive uh, in a sort of new way to these shores so i'm very proud of the episcopal church uh, for not just speaking the, the or talking the talk but uh, but really uh, in that sense of the word opening up the table of hospitality uh, in fact, they even did a drive for uh, um, not only winter clothes, but all kinds of things to help uh, some of these new families get their feet on the ground in that sense, but in a tangible way. You know, we, we, we read about the, uh, the wise men bringing gifts that were not really practical. <laughs> but, uh, but I think uh, we've learned 
we have learned that we can actually give gifts that are practical like a winter cloth you know winter coat and uh, you know uh, something to cook your food with and that sort of thing so we did a, a lovely drive and i think people in the, uh, across the diocese have been generous in in responding uh, to the welcome that we want to make sure every family that is new hears and appreciates in a genuine way uh, in in this part of the uh, vineyard of god they just uh, pointed out uh, maybe one of the key to unlock the potentials of the church which in some areas uh, are declining but maybe the key to that is the radical welcome that your diocese has shown as an example and uh, uh, we in the Asian American ministries are talking about the word repeopling the Episcopal church that has kind of depleted in terms of numbers and maybe your diocese is one of those who provide the, the answer to uh, the question of, of, of lack of church growth for that matter. Um, how would you exp- uh, how would you be able to transform the new American Episcopalians to becoming missionaries within and outside their cultures? How should yeah. the Episcopal Church uh, major on on transforming us as missionaries here in the United States. That's that's the that's a beautiful uh, way to frame it, because I think one of the one of the things that we have is um, some institutional baggage in the Episcopal Church, where the other, and by that I mean culturally, the other, whoever that is is often seen as someone whom we should transform. I think we are learning, and I I think we're still in the learning phase, that it is better for us to learn from the other because they bring perspective and a spirituality that can help strengthen the whole in that sense of the word. So in a way, there is a... uh, an invitation for the Episcopal Church to learn to be humble and listen to whoever the other is instead of making them in our image in that sense of the word. And I think the more we are willing to be in that spiritual place, the more psychologically and sociologically we will be transformed as a beloved community. So the person who's coming from Myanmar should be not just a guest, but the teacher so that we can learn from them as the sort of mainstream church. And I think that's where Asian American ministries can be so vital to the life of the larger church because we we bring that sense of a difference in our spirituality, in our worship, in the way we spend time in in devotion, in bhakti, if you will, you know, that that the ad, ad, adoration, if you will, is is a huge part of how we worship in different parts of Asian culture, and so when we bring those and infuse that kind of energy 
within the episcopal church the whole church the whole episcopal church is transformed and then there's, there's an opportunity for quote unquote anglo-saxon white american traditions uh to sit and take notice and be transformed in the process instead of trying it the other way around you know and using the same old sort of colonial pattern paradigms of operations so i think in a way i think uh, the the asian american presence in the episcopal church is uh, is a huge gift just as the the african american presence is in the episcopal church and the more we can recognize those as teaching opportunities rather than acquiescing opportunities culturally uh, the better we will be as a church thank you it's uh, it's good that you highlight also the fact that we have now 30 current congregations that we welcome in the episcopal church and this uh-huh. past year 2021 to 2022 22 of them uh, lay leaders have committed themselves to being trained as catechists and now are serving their congregations and hopefully some of them will move towards ordination and I think two of them come from the, your diocese by the way that's Shepard. terrific that's so terrific I'm so happy about it Thank now you. Uh, uh, finally Bishop Prince uh, this may be my last question but uh, let us shift now to the burning question of the times now the COVID pandemic has hit everybody in the world and each in our localities now uh, sometimes trials and tribulations bring the, the best in us sometimes also it brings the worst in us uh, in your experience uh, you know this almost past two years now this pandemic uh, that does it create a paradigm shift in how we serve our people and uh, uh, would do you think that our church and our society would come would emerge better people and better nation and better Christians out of this experience because we share common experience of pain struggles and difficulties in times of pandemic uh, so are you optimistic that this will bring a much better uh, church out of us or not i am i am optimistic in spite of the challenges i think we are in that sense of the word facing at the same time a global pandemic which is In a, in a way, it's an equalizer. It affects everybody. You know, it doesn't see color or caste or class or anything like that, gender. You know, across the board, everybody's impacted. But it is also true that it has stirred up so much in within us that is um, moving towards division and sort of turning us against one another so within this season i think the church has had the opportunity to reach out in a way that it has not really done before i remember in the early days of the pandemic and you probably have also noticed this uh, father fred We had vestries, for instance, who are lay leaders primarily in every church, calling every person in the congregation. 
it was not only the priest who was doing that but vestries along with the priest calling people to check on them to see how they were doing i think the kind of reach that we've had with people in terms of care and pastoral accompaniment etc ironically even though we cannot see each other face to face i think we become closer as congregations if you will there is a lot more um human connectivity etc there are these zoom coffee hours for instance which have become vulnerable places where people listen to one another and 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 pray and really deeply engage human community and all of this is happening online in many ways you know so i think i think there is a a great opportunity for us to become more like the beloved community that god wants us to be if we are willing to not allow some of the sort of cultural baggage to take the the noise uh, or the volume if you will uh, of dividing us and sort of making us feel like us and them vaccinated non vaccinated uh, masked and non masked and all kinds of divisions that that um, that are being politicized if you will so i see this as an opportunity for the episcopal church to actually come out a lot um a lot more genuine in our beloved community practices and uh, and perhaps the day will come when we are able to meet you know safely in in each other's presence when we will equally honor those who are not able to join physically but be present in that sense the word spiritually and online um because there are a lot of people who are not able to for many reasons gather in one place um you know geographically but we can all gather in one place spiritually and that's what this pandemic has taught all of us and i hope we will never forget that lesson uh so that nobody needs to feel like they they cannot be present uh, just because they cannot travel and be in each other's company physically thank you bishop uh so uh in a sense uh physical absence makes the heart grow fonder if we take that spiritually and when the time comes for us when pandemic is over we emerge to be a better people if we choose to do so uh there's ambiguity in in life but uh, we can always choose light from the darkness and uh positive things out of what could be negative and uh, again your words of innovation risk stewardship comes into play is there anything else bishop that you want to add it's been a wonderful uh, conversation with you but uh, anything else that you wish to add well you know just just to say that um good il- illustrations of family um are important for us to thrive as human beings you know um as as a church one of the one of the things that we have as a gift is to be family to people who don't have family 
there are all kinds of reasons for which people have um, estranged, you know, biological families and uh, problematic biological families. But one of the things that Jesus has taught us to do is to recognize that we have in church, in the church, a spiritual family that can be very significant for our nurture, for our thriving. And so I pray that anybody who is listening to this podcast, who is looking for a spiritual family, will be able to find one in the Episcopal Church, wherever they are, wherever they are on life's journey, wherever they are in terms of um, finding themselves grounded some, somewhere, wherever they are in terms of hope. I hope they will never give up uh, on the fact that God loves them and that the Episcopal Church welcomes them in a very meaningful and genuine way uh, and that they will find uh, a place that they can call home in a spiritual sense. And I thank you for your leadership, Father Fred, in enabling that to happen in communities that are often considered marginal in our culture. So thanks for your leadership and for your prophetic voice over many decades. We are very grateful to you for your leadership. Thank you, Bishop Prince. And ladies and gentlemen, that's Bishop Prince Singh, currently the Diocese of Rock Sister and soon Bishop of Michigan. And uh, as, as a parting word to us, he has shared with us how he has come from the margins and move into the mainstream. So stop Asian hate. We are Asian Americans. We are here to stay. We want to be part of the integral part of the mainstream United States. And we are making our mark here. And as part of this conversation, a major part of the conversation is that Christianity and the Episcopal Church the most important thing is the love we share and the relationships that we create more than the preaching and the teaching and the wisdom and everything. It's the love that we share, the relationship that we create and the word the Episcopal Church welcomes you.